Reading from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Thank you, Laura. Good morning. Imagine yourself as a car dealer. Someone comes in and says, Hey, I'm so excited. I want to buy a brand new car. I want a really nice shiny one, a beautiful one. I want one with, uh, you know, good acceleration, lots of power, but good gas mileage. Uh, I've been waiting. I've been saving up. I'm so excited. I want a brand new car. But one little thing... I want a car without an engine. You know, those engines are kind of messy. They take oil. You've got to put gas in them and all that. So I just want the car, but I don't want the engine. What would you think? You'd think they're a little crazy, right? <laughs> or at least, at the very least, that they don't understand cars. You can't have a car, a real car, without an engine. Well, similarly, you cannot have Christianity without the resurrection. When I was a brand new believer, 17 years old, I had just come to Christ. And I didn't know where to go to church. A friend invited me to a mainline denominational church. And so I went to church, and then we had a small little youth group with a few teens in it. And so I started going there. And after two or three times... It was being led by the minister of the church. After two or three times, I, I was kind of confused by some of the things he was saying. I didn't know much at all. But some things were odd about what he was saying. So I went to him and I said, So what do you believe about Jesus? Simple question. He said, Oh yeah, well, you know, Jesus, I mean, he was awesome. He was a great guy, lived an incredible life, taught many wonderful things, and unfortunately he got on the wrong side of the Romans and they killed him. 
And I'm thinking, yeah, is, is there more? And so I asked him, what about the resurrection? He said, oh, that's just mythology. You know, the disciples put that in. But, but no, Jesus, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's crazy. That doesn't happen. Here was a minister of the church, but even I knew that he was wrong. <laughs> that you can't have Christianity without the resurrection. Not just Christ's resurrection, but our resurrection as well. I've run into a num number of other people who would call themselves believers who don't believe in the miracle of the resurrection. And in particular of our resurrection, of our physical bodies. There's historians and liberal scholars, intellectuals, and others who think you can have Christianity without the resurrection. But in the church in Corinth, there were some who believed that as well. Verse 12, if Christ is preached, he's been raised from the dead. How do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, how could that happen? How could they believe that somehow you can have Christ or Christianity without the resurrection? Well, we don't know exactly what was in their minds, but maybe a combination of these things. Uh, you know, they, they knew about Christ, that he had died, but then his physical body was raised. It was no longer in the tomb. And now, as a fairly new church, they were, had come to Christ, they were excited, but they were watching their friends, their loved ones who had come to Christ, die. And they weren't seeing their physical bodies resurrected immediately. So they began to wonder, what, what's going on? Maybe there is no resurrection for us. Or possibly... They had bought into the Greek philosophy of the day, which is uh, the Greeks believed in this dualism. The soul and the body are really two separate things. The soul just puts on the body for a while, but when you die, the soul is released from the body into heaven. I find many Christians who kind of think this way, that somehow our bodies don't really matter that much, that, that our soul gets released and go lives in heaven in this spiritual world and our bodies aren't a part of that. There are some in the Greek world who were teaching that the resurrection had already happened. We see that talked about in the book of 1 Thessalonians, that some of them were believing that, you know, when you come to Christ, then there's a spiritual resurrection. It's already happened, and uh, you're already kind of risen with Christ, so your bodies really don't matter. Someday they'll die and rot, and that'll be the end of it. You see, there was all this confusion about the resurrection. I find that that's true for many today as well. But in the New Testament, it is very clear. God will resurrect these actual physical bodies. It's a mystery how that all happens, but it's clear that He will resurrect these physical bodies. It's our hope. It's the goal of all creation being restored. All of creation groans, longing for the redemption of our bodies. Amazing. Like a car without an engine, you cannot have Christianity without the bodily, physical resurrection. And so Paul argues in our passage today. So pray with me and we'll look together at this. Lord, how amazing that you truly Lord Jesus, rose from the dead. 
bodily, physically, and that you promise that we will rise as well. That is our hope. That is our confidence because of what you have done and said. As we look today at these great truths about the resurrection, Lord, may our hope be increased. And may we long evermore to have our physical bodies resurrected that we might dwell with you truly in the new heavens and new earth forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So he says, some of you are teaching there's no resurrection. And then in verse 13, he makes a very important connection. He says this, But if there is no resurrection from the dead for us, not even Christ has been raised. Notice his connection. He says, if you're thinking about Christians being raised, you cannot separate that from Christ's resurrection. You see, Paul has a very clear perspective that it's important we get. We've been placed into Christ. Therefore, what's true of Christ is true of us. Christ rose, therefore, we will too. It's as good as done. But if we don't rise, then neither has Christ risen. We have become one with Him when you put your faith in Christ. You know, when you take two primary colors, you take yellow and blue, and you mix them together, what do you get? You get green. They become something different. And then you can never separate them again. You can't separate them into yellow and blue. And so, so we are with Christ. We've been united with Christ. And so what's true of Christ is us and you can't separate it. We are in Christ people when you give your life to Christ. We can't be separated from what happens to him. So Paul says, look, if you say there's no resurrection of people, then there is no resurrection of Christ. And if there is no resurrection, then he goes on in verse 14 through 19 to say, all right, some of you say there's no resurrection. Well, let's really think about your theology. Let's think through the implications. For somebody who believes there's no resurrection, he gives six results. And he wants us to understand very clearly that if we believe there's no resurrection, then these things will be true. First, in verse 14, he says this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Vain or empty, worthless, meaningless. Paul's saying, if there's no resurrection, then everything we say, the apostles, everything we teach is garbage. It's not even worth listening to. It's like a Ponzi scheme where you put your money in, but you, you never get a result. He's saying that's the way preaching is. Our preaching, it's worthless. It doesn't give a return. The gospel is just about some dead guy who got on the wrong side of the Romans, was put to death, and that's it. So all our Christianity is simply garbage. That dead guy's long gone, just like the world around us says. What a waste of time. Just like the minister at the church I went to who all he could say was, well, you know, Jesus was a good example and, you know, we're to be good like him. Well, there's a lot better philosophies out there than that. It's worthless. <laughs> if there is no resurrection. Secondly, if there is no resurrection, your faith is vain or worthless. He says, ongoing in verse 14, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. And then down in verse 17, 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. He says if there's no resurrection, then Jesus may have died on a cross, but there's no proof he ever dealt with your sins. There's no proof that they have been forgiven. There is no Lord, risen Lord, that conquered your sins and conquered death, and therefore you are still trapped in your sins. You are separated from God, lost under God's judgment, trapped forever in your sinfulness, and there is no hope. You're like a prisoner with no hope of parole. You're stuck. You are hopeless of ever being whole, ever being freed from your sin, ever, ever finally being able to walk in newness of life. Your faith is worthless if, if there is no resurrection. As C.S. Lewis says in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, for you, for me, if there's no resurrection, it's always winter and never Christmas. Never spring. There is no hope. Third, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then we, the apostles, are a bunch of liars. So he says in verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. He says, you know, we're actually preaching against God because if God didn't raise Jesus, then we're telling lies about God. <laughs> you can't believe anything we say. We're lying about seeing the risen Christ. We made it up and the dead are not raised. It's all over. What that means, folks, is that if you don't believe in the resurrection, it means you can't trust anything the apostles say because central to everything they say is the resurrection. And that means... The entire New Testament is garbage. If there's no resurrection, you may as well rip out the entire New Testament and just read some of the fun stories in the Old Testament and try to follow the Ten Commandments or something because the whole New Testament is garbage if there is no resurrection. Paul says, we're a bunch of liars, so don't believe us. If there is no resurrection... Fourth, if there's no resurrection, then everybody who's died has just perished. It's over. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Everybody who's died has been obliterated. They've perished. You'll never see them again. There is no heaven for us. There's no life after death if there's no resurrection. Those ones who have gone before you that you love and you long to see again, you will never see them again. It's over. If, if there is no resurrection. Fifth, if there is no resurrection, then all believers are just fools. We're wasting our time. Verse 19, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We're fools because we've chosen to live for the future and there is no future. If all we get from Christ is in this life, then we're wasting our time. We are hoping in something in which there is no real hope at all. Like 
those hoping for an In-N-Out burger to come to Boise someday. (laughs) What a foundless hope. (laughs) Or those who hope that the Vandals might beat the Broncos in football again someday. (laughs) It's hopeless, folks. (laughs) There is no hope. You see, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then the things we're putting our hope in are worthless. And we are fools, Paul says. So finally, number six, the results. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then in the end, death wins. Death, which entered in with Adam and spread to all men, wins in the end. We all die. We're obliterated. We kill ourselves. We kill each other. It's over. The end. So frankly, we may as well go home right now. May as well go work in your garden a little bit. Of course, that's all going to die too. Just warning you. But it's over. Now think for a minute, what we've just described here is life without Christ, our unbelieving friends around us. This is how they live, with no hope. Because they do not believe in the resurrection how they need to have a taste of hope and reality and truth. But now Paul goes on to say, well, that's if Christ has not been raised. (laughs) But he has been. The good news is Christ has been raised and therefore everything in the universe has changed. And now he gives six great truths to counteract the other six results if there is no resurrection. He says, no, because there is a resurrection, Christ has risen These are the great truths that we all live by. Number one, verse 20, Jesus is only the first fruits. Jesus is only the first fruits. Jesus, His resurrection, verse 20, is the first fruits. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah, it's true. He's the first fruits of those who are asleep, who have died. You see, in the Jewish calendar, there are three great feasts, and the spring feast is the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. And this was the feast where people would bring, they would all come gather in Jerusalem, and they would bring the very first fruits of their harvest, the first little bit of grain they would get, the first produce, and they would bring it, and they would make a thank offering to God, saying, Aha! Because we have the first fruits, we know God will be good to us and give us the rest of the harvest. It's, it's an act of trust. It's an act of faith. It's an act of hope to say, we believe you, God, because you've given us the first fruits. I love when spring just starts to break forth and the snow melts and the first little sign of spring are the crocuses that begin to bloom. And then you get the daffodils starting to come up, and then the tulips, and you know that, that spring and summer are right around the corner, and there'll be a glorious spectrum of beauty as the trees blossom and as there's fruitfulness in the land and we plant our gardens. It's a beautiful time, and that's what Jesus is, is our first fruit. Because Jesus rose from the dead, then we can be absolutely confident that the rest of the harvest is coming, and we are that harvest our bodies will be raised as well in His timing, in His way, 
But because of Jesus' resurrection, we know this dark winter in which we live will end. Spring is coming. Our resurrection is soon to come. That's the first great truth. Jesus is only the first fruit. Secondly, verse 21 and 22, life is offered to everyone. Life is offered to everyone. Since, he says, by a man came death. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Life is offered to all. You see, how do we get to share in Christ's resurrection? That's the question. How do we really come to be united with him in a way that guarantees that we will rise with him? Well, it's the same way we got our sin nature. How did we get it? We were born into Adam. We were placed into Adam, and none of us could avoid that. That gene of sinfulness was passed on to every one of us. That literal sin gene or sin sin virus that's in our genes cannot be escaped because we were all born into Adam. We all live under Adam, and we cannot avoid that. Angelina Jolie, this last week, it was announced she had a double mastectomy to avoid cancer because she has a gene that says she has an 87% chance of getting breast cancer, and therefore she wanted to avoid that. But we and she, we and she, all of us, have a sin gene that cannot be cut out that goes to the very heart of who we are. No matter what we do, we cannot get rid of it. Therefore, everyone dies because we're under Adam. Death is our greatest enemy. It destroys, and we all experience that physical death because we're born under Adam. But what Paul is saying is, by the resurrection of Christ, by faith, we can actually overcome death, we can actually be placed into Christ. We can get a new nature. The sin nature becomes reversed. So now we're learning to live by our new nature. Adam brought death to everybody, but Christ, by his resurrection, brings life to everybody who will believe. Paul is not saying that everyone gets this eternal life and gets to go to heaven, but he He is saying it's available to anyone who will believe in Christ, become under Christ. So the key to life for all of us is, are we in Adam still? Or have we transferred to the kingdom of Jesus? Have we made him Savior and Lord? And if we have, we have new life. That life is offered to all of us because Jesus rose from the dead. Have we accepted our release from prison? and walked out the door or do we stay in our cell and choose not to leave that's our choice but our life life is offered to all the third great truth we see from the resurrection if the resurrection is true then our resurrection yours and mine our physical resurrection this body being resurrected is guaranteed Verse 23, Christ is the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. When Jesus comes back, 
our resurrection is guaranteed because Jesus rose from the dead. But it'll happen in its proper order. That's why we don't see it yet. That's why people die and their bodies deteriorate. And yet, somehow in the mystery of God, and you'll find out more next week, more how that happens because he explains it in the next section. But in the mystery of God, that when Jesus returns, we will receive new bodies. Our bodies will be transformed and we will receive new physical yet spiritual bodies. It's a mystery in Christ in the proper order. But it's guaranteed because Christ rose from the dead. Again, in the book Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, there's that wonderful scene where Aslan, who is the Christ figure, the lion, the great lion, gives up his life to save Edmund. And he is slain, killed by the white witch on the stone table. But the white witch thought she was winning, thought death had won. But see, that stone table cracked because, as C.S. Lewis describes, there's a deeper magic. (laughs) And Aslan rose. And when he rose, there was still a battle to be fought between the good Narnians and the bad Narnians. But essentially the battle was over, the war was over because they had the risen Aslan, the risen Christ figure, and now it was just mop-up from there on. (laughs) Folks, when, when Jesus rose from the dead, the battle was over, death was defeated, the war was won. We are still experiencing some of the mop-up operations but it's guaranteed that we as well will rise with Christ, that we will rise and be with Him forever. When Jesus rose from the dead, death was no longer something to be feared because it's been conquered by Him. The fourth great truth that Paul goes on to say is that because the resurrection is true, and I want you to get this, this is important, the entire universe will be set right. The entire universe will be set right. The entire universe today groans, we're told in Romans chapter 8. Groans under sin, groans longing for the redemption of our bodies, it says. Amazing. And in verse 24 and following, it describes how the end will come when He, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God and to the Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. And he goes on to talk about in the end, all things will be subjected to Christ and the Christ subjects all things to the Father, submits everything to him. All enemy rule and all authority in earth and heaven are defeated. Death will be abolished forever. No one will ever die again. Amazing. Awesome. Wonderful. And in the end, Jesus hands over the kingdom to the Father and subjects himself to the Father's hand. Isn't that interesting? In the new heavens and new earth, the new creation, when everything is restored and all the universe is set right, as a result of Jesus being risen from the dead, at that point... Even Jesus will submit himself to the Father. You see, there's hierarchy even in the Trinity. Jesus is totally equal with the Father, and yet there is proper order, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the Trinity itself. 
that continues forever. Jesus always is the Son. So, what's Paul saying? He's saying that when Adam sinned and sin entered the world, there was a crack in the universe. And this entire universe was subject to corruption. And we see it and experience it all around us. Death reigns. But when Jesus rose from the dead, that crack began to be mended. Death was defeated. Healing and restoration, this new kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ was established. And that kingdom's expanding every day as you and I learn to submit to Him and follow Him as Lord and more and more people come to Him. That kingdom expands and the healing of the universe has already begun. But in the end, when Jesus returns and all is made right and finally death is defeated forever, then the universe is completely restored. Hallelujah. I look forward to that day. And that was guaranteed. That all began when Jesus rose from the dead. The end of the story that started at creation will be that God wins in the end. Death does not win. God wins and we get to enjoy Him forever. And all this is due to the resurrection of Christ when the corruption of sin began to be reversed from this earth. Now, he gives two more great truths at the end of the section, but I want to just spend a moment on verse 29 because if you've looked at this passage, you know it's an odd verse. Otherwise, Paul argues, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they also baptized for them? You want the definitive explanation of this? You'll have to wait till Jesus returns. Put your hope in that. <laughs> Because I can't give it to you. There's over, scholars have come up with at least 40 explanations for this verse, this one verse. We don't really know what Paul's talking about here. He's somehow using this as an argument to say that there are some who are baptized for the dead and they're foolish if there is no resurrection. But we don't really know what's going on. I think, to me, the two best explanations in my thinking are that what he's saying is that, well, there's some who, as they watch their Christian friends die, they are unbelievers, they're watching their Christian friends die. And they're saying, I want to spend eternity with them, so I will come to Christ and be baptized and step into the Christian world so that I can spend eternity with my Christian friends. That may be what he's talking about, being baptized for the dead. Or it could be simply that some Christians had come to the Lord but hadn't had a chance to be baptized yet and then they died. And seeing the importance of baptism, some of their friends or family left behind were saying, well, they didn't get to be baptized. Maybe I'll be baptized by proxy for them. Possibly, but here's the deal. There is no evidence in church history anywhere that this was going on or in the early church. We didn't know anything about it. There's nothing else in the New Testament that describes it. No one has ever followed this practice except the LDS Church, Mormons today, they camped on this verse and now they do baptisms for the dead, but there really is no support for that other than this obscure verse that we don't understand. Enough said about verse 29. Because I want to get to the next two great truths. If the resurrection is true, then number five, our suffering has meaning. 
our suffering has meaning. Verse 30 through 32. Why also are we in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then why in the world would I suffer like I do following Christ and experience the rejection I experienced at Ephesus and every place else I go living for the faith? Why in the world would I do that if there's no resurrection? That would be completely foolish. That would mean our suffering has no meaning. It's pointless. Like the suffering for unbelievers around us, it's, it's meaningless. It has no point. But if the resurrection is true, then our suffering is imbued with incredible purpose and meaning because God uses it to shape us and to expand His kingdom and to accomplish incredible things for His purposes. You see, suffering seems so pointless. It's horrible. When a baby dies or someone's diagnosed with cancer or has a heart attack or whatever, or you look at Saeed Abedini who's in prison in Iran for his faith, it's meaningless unless there's a resurrection. But if there's a resurrection, then it's imbued with incredible purpose and value. If there's no resurrection, Paul says, let's party. <laughs> but if there is, let's be willing to suffer for Christ's sake because it matters forever, for eternity. And then finally, number six, if the resurrection is true, then godliness really matters. What we do in these bodies to learn to follow Christ and obey Him is simply a rehearsal for heaven. We are learning to walk with Him now so that we can walk with Him forever. Verse 33 and 34, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Paul says, some live as though they don't even know God. Don't be that way. If God is true and He's risen Lord and Savior, then everything we do, learning to obey Him, is very is important. This very body and the things we do in this body will impact eternity forever. This body and what I do in it will be carried over to eternity. So why in the world would I want to give in to sin? But he says, since Christ is raised, our suffering matters. Living a godly life is our way of learning to live in Christ's presence forever. So he's pretty direct. He says, stop sinning. <laughs> Knock it off. And put your hope in the resurrection. You see, denying the resurrection is like trying to have a car without an engine. It just doesn't work. It's impossible. Christianity is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does it matter if you believe in the resurrection? Absolutely. That's why Easter is truly the greatest celebration and the greatest holiday for Christians. Because the resurrection was the first sign of spring. The first sign that we, too, are, will be raised with Christ. That's why we can be a people who live by hope. The song... We just sang a moment ago, I will rise.
This is true because of the resurrection. Jesus has overcome. And the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won. He is risen from the dead. And I will rise when he calls my name. No more sorrow. No more pain. I will rise on eagle's wings before my God, fall on my knees, and I will rise. Let's pray. What a glorious truth. Thank you that we get to live by hope in a world that's hopeless because the resurrection is true. May we be people who live in hope, who live in godliness, who are willing to suffer because of the great hope that we have that we too will rise with Christ when he returns. Praise you. Thank you that we have that hope in Jesus' name. Amen.